0: Do you know the people that knew us in Italy? That's cool. I was
1: thunderstruck Did you have a good time over there? Where did you go? I had a
0: wonderful time. You know what I did, which I I did not expect Robert Albertson jump in here. We're doing the Rick Steves tour guide. The coolest thing about Venice is going back to Venice. The first time you go, you're all like, you know, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. It's amazing.
0: And John, I mean, you grew up with all that stuff. Not all of us
1: have the luxury of going once and then going back, Tom. How were the floods?
0: The floods were serious. Uh, yeah. I stay at the Metropole, which is an acclaimed hotel, very fancy place. And they had, they right in the hallway, they had 18, 20 inches of water. The greedy I didn't get to, I couldn't afford the martini there. And the greedy had like three feet of water in the lobby.
1: Mrs. Keene sent me a very cool video of you. Oh, with, did she? With a cigar and a drink of, uh, of your choice. And it looks like you were having a lot of fun. Guys, we will not be focusing on Tom Keene's vacation. Let's focus on the markets. The like, hours, what do we you will do now? We'll be focusing on the markets. And we'll yeah. do that with Robert Albertson, Sandler O'Neill, Chief. Chief. Chief Investment Strategist. Good
2: morning to you, Robert. Good morning. How are you? Happy New Year.
1: gain of 29% for 2019. A happy new year to anyone that was in the market. The best year since 2013. What do you do if you missed out on that monster year?
2: You don't get fooled. Uh, No one predicted 2019. And I think the biggest surprise was uh, the direction of interest rates, um, which really pumps up equity valuations uh, way ahead of their earnings momentum. I think 2020 is more of a year of a reckoning. We got three problems, at least in the U.S. we do. Number one, we got a labor force that is not growing fast enough now to support anything like 200,000 a month jobs. Number two, we don't have uh, any capex any business fixed investment maybe that'll change but it's been decelerating for four straight quarters and that's really key to the long-term growth
1: let's unpack some of that and begin with the idea that hardly anyone predicted 2019. doug cass a good friend of this program good yeah. friend of tom okay. quoted mickey mantle a baseball player that i know tom is very fond of uh, from back in when was it tom the 50s the 60s i wear a mickey Mantle belt buckle <laughs> there was a quote from him i never knew the game of baseball was so easy until I entered the broadcasting booth. And I think that is so true for what we do on programs like this. There are many people that I imagine over the next coming weeks will say things like, the easy money has been made, except I don't recall many people in January of 2018 talking about the easy money through 2019 and the year to come. I think the challenge last year was staying invested. You had Mm -hmm. excuse after excuse, reason after reason thrown in your face to abandon this rally. In late spring of last year, in the depths of summer, of last year as well. And the biggest challenge, as Tom pointed out, time and time again through last year, was the courage to stay invested. How courageous do you need to be in 2020?
2: I think you need to be very careful. Um, I really don't buy that this continues like it has. I think investors have to look at the fundamentals and realize eventually they drag down the market uh and there there's just too many things going in the wrong direction you know, the biggest thing that impacted last year but didn't have any impact were all the global issues you had brexit you had china trade you had crazy stuff yeah. on all political angles and at the end of the day it didn't do too much but if you look closely at last year all those d- uh, global issues if i can call them that when they when they popped up and got hot knocked the market down yes the market recovered it got higher right. and higher the reason it got higher and higher was Basically, the ambient level of interest rates. Nobody bet on, on what happened to rates.
0: You, were, you thought, Robert, that, that, that years ago we'd read Cram, Dodd, and Coddle, and you and I were cool because we would find a first edition, which was on railroad stocks, et cetera, et cetera. Does any of that matter anymore? And I say that because I've got the performing companies with decent revenue growth, and corporations are adjusting down to steady or ample or expected free cash flows. Why has that changed with the passing of a new year? I mean, that's why we lifted last year with Fed, you know, accommodation and all that. I, I mean, I mean there's still corporations are still going to get it done this year, aren't they?
2: They're going to have growth, yes, yeah. but not anything like uh, last year. And remember, uh, again, the, the stock market reacted more to interest rates than to any specific company. I think what you do this year is you pick very careful, very carefully stocks. You don't do index funds, uh, and you swear to yourself that this is a decision you're going to make and stick with for two or three years. Because, look, if CapEx comes back, uh, it could be something like 2019, but uh, you're not going to know that until end of first quarter.
0: What Mr. Albertson just said there, folks, is the Bible of this show, which is, John, I believe he said something like, stick with it for two or three years. Heaven forbid Anybody would have that timeline in business media. Time horizon matters. Uh, Wouldn't we
1: love that kind of time horizon as well, Tom? Well, I'm in the all-cash
0: show. I've got points. I called my broker this morning, but half of 1% in. Boom. Done. Are you calling the top?
1: Is that what this is? There might be some people driving to work right now, driving off the road, very worried that you're coming out of cash and going into equities. We've all read the 2020 outlooks, Robert, and I think I've pulled out some of the calls in the last 24 hours, just going through them all, and this was from Barclays. And I'd love to know which part of this you disagree with. They said the following, we expect a tepid recovery to uninspiring trend growth, but with diminished economic and policy risks in light of the very low returns on offer in core bond markets, we think this sets the stage for a grind higher in risk assets unpack that for me what do you disagree with within that because that really is the consensus
2: thing for a lot of people going into the new year i don't think people are uh, factoring in some of the goblins that came out last year Uh, they aren't going back into the the cave Uh, take brexit Um, we finally got somewhere we still haven't taken off the table that they crash out um, and it is unlikely that anything pleasant will hit the news media uh, on, on their trade negotiations. Take China trade, which has only done minimal in terms of accomplishment. Uh, there's going to be a lot of noise there. Right. There's going to be unbearable noise in, uh, in the, the political situation. And, and let me say one last thing Please. that I think upsets this market eventually, which is nationalism which I almost blame our president for starting. But uh, it's one thing to see riots in Hong Kong and be upset about it, but you sort of understand the reasons. It's harder to see that in Santiago. Um, and, and it's genuine across the world. There's a lot of social unrest, um, and it all does come from, I think, nationalism. But in any right. event, I don't think right. those recede this year. I think those risks go up.
0: One final question. We've been remiss not to get to it as a kickoff for a year. We're thrilled you could be with us today. What do you hear from Sandler O'Neill clients? You people own mid-sized banking in America. People, they're not, you know, building skyscrapers on Park Avenue. They're out there grinding it every day. What do you hear from your clients?
2: Well, as I was saying to you earlier, I've got the advantage of talking to or visiting a regional bank in the United States literally every week. Um, I listened to every earnings call to get any flavor for what's going on. I am focused on what's happening on the ground, not what their stocks are doing. And in reality, uh, first half of the year, everything came out okay. You didn't see any um, problem in terms of business confidence. Third quarter was the watershed. Uh, all of a sudden, mm-hmm. they're all saying, we're contracting. Uh, we, we we were concerned, and now we're more than concerned. So you've really got on the ground at the moment a very negative uh, piece of momentum in terms of business investments. Right. Uh, it has not yet hit the consumer. Um, that's the window I've got.
0: Okay, Robert, i have going to leave it there. Robert Elbertson, thank you Robert, so much for see to you. Wonderful to kick off the year uh, with us. Um, one day, I'm walking down Madison Avenue, and they're walking at me as <laughs> Mr. Gone. and we had a nice chat on Madison Avenue about what's going on. This is pre all this uproar.
1: Yeah.
0: I think maybe more than anyone we know in our Bloomberg universe, things have changed for Mr. Gone in the last 10 years.
1: Now, apparently, he's going to be a key part of the next Bond movie. How on earth did he get from Japan to Lebanon?
0: I, I, well, they, there's a lot of private agencies involved. There's some new investigation. I think one of the latest news is Turkey is doing something with presumed pilots of all this. Should we bring in Chris Bryan, let's bring him in.
1: Opinion Columnist? Chris, good on this. for any of our listeners that might have missed this, let's just set the stage with what the former head of Rena <clears throat> Nissan was suspected of doing, alleged of doing, and why he was locked up in his house, effectively, over in Japan, and how on earth he got from there to Lebanon before the new year.
3: Yes, so Mr. Goen arrested roughly a year ago. Uh, the, the charges against him broadly are undeclared income and misappropriation of, of company funds. Charges, I should make clear, he you know, vehemently denies. Um, he was out on bail, which in itself was extraordinary because it doesn't happen very often in, in Japan, which has a famously severe uh, legal system. And, um, you know, Out of the blue, uh, and literally my jaw hit the floor when I heard this, um, he he managed to escape. And there's no way that that should have been able to happen because he was under the most intense surveillance. And so how he went about doing this, nobody really knows yet. There have been lots of theories, some of which, unfortunately, have been uh, knocked on the head. Uh, The one about him being in a music case, apparently not true, sadly. That would have been great for the movie, but anyway. uh, Next week, he's going to give a press conference where hopefully he will be able to tell uh, the story of how he managed to get out. But uh, it, to be a bit more serious about this, there are still um, some very serious allegations against him. And he really now needs to take the opportunity to answer some of those questions. And a press conference just won't cut it. There needs to be some kind of process. And how you go about organizing that, I don't know. Because, of course, Japan is going to say to Lebanon, well, we want Mr. Going back. Lebanon will say to Japan, no, nope, that's not going to happen. Uh, do we expect the Japanese prosecutors to, to, to cooperate with the Lebanese authorities? I don't know. So Mr Ghosn is now in some kind of limbo. Uh, he, uh, he can stay put in Beirut. He could go to France, though. Uh, French ministers said this morning they also wouldn't deport Mr Ghosn. And so that would be my preference, because he could go there, answer the questions, and perhaps we might have some faith that he, he you know, there'd be a proper examination of
1: these issues. Chris, we could talk for hours about how on earth he managed to make this trip and the the mystery, the mystery around all of this, which I just find absolutely fascinating. But as you say, we've got to talk about the case. And the fact of the matter is, his former colleague, Greg Kelly, is still in Tokyo awaiting absolutely. trial. What on earth happens to Greg Kelly now Carlos Ghosn has fled the country?
3: Well, that's a very good point. And, and, you know, it's hard to imagine the case against him can now go ahead. Uh, and, and it is worth noting Mr. Kelly's plight here. So Mr. Goen has fled. Uh, he obviously had his resources and his, his money to, to achieve that. Uh, Mr. Kelly left in, in the lurch there, so that's one thing. The other thing to note about it is anybody who is arrested in future in Japan, a white-collar criminal, uh, has got absolutely no hope of getting bail anymore, have they, uh, after what Mr. Goen has done. So, you know, parts of the media, he's been feted almost as a folk hero. I don't quite see it that way. Essentially, you know, he's, he's, he's done what he needed to do for himself now. But it doesn't mean this is over for Mr. Goen. He has questions to answer. But Nissan and Renault will be uncomfortable too because he's now got a pulpit in which he can settle some scores next week.
0: Can he go anywhere?
3: Well, yeah, I think he can. I mean, France has said this morning that they would not um, extradite because they don't uh, extradite French national. Now, clearly he'd have to cross some airspace to get there, but I can't imagine the plane being grounded by any of the countries in between. But, I mean, I don't know. I'm not an expert on that, but I I think yes is the answer. He probably can. But it's going to be difficult for him to resume his previous role as sort of jet-setting Davos man with these allegations hanging over him. Whether he'd be welcome in France is another matter because as I wrote in my column today, you know, for Mr Macron, the president there, who's often accused of, being sort of president of the rich he doesn't really want Mr Goan hanging around in France you know reminding him of here's somebody who who, who essentially uh, skipped justice in Japan.
1: Well Chris final question on that he would say he's escaped injustice and I just wonder the big spotlight right now over the Japanese judicial system where does it leave it?
3: Well look you know that I think has been a a big revelation to a lot of people 99% conviction rate in Japan that's pretty unbelievable isn't it Nevertheless, uh, you know, France saying this morning, at the end of the day, the law is a law. And, and Mr. Goen worked in Japan for 20 years. He knew very well about the legal system there. Now, I certainly wouldn't want to be in Mr. Goen's shoes. And I think a lot of people are sympathetic. You know, he had the opportunity to get out and he did. Uh, but I say that, that, that system now under some spotlight, but Mr. Goen is himself facing some questions too.
0: Chris Bryan, thank you so much, expert on Mr. Gone, some real authority Thanks, there Chris. on the business path of Mr. Gone and of course, the events of the last uh, three and four days as well. Mm-hmm. Henrietta Trez joins us right now with beta Partners. On what we're doing in Washington. The story is construction begins this year, Henrietta, of a $13 billion redo of JFK. They're building LaGuardia right now. Is this nation actually going to do infrastructure this year?
4: Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I would not expect an infrastructure project to be completed this year, although our New Orleans airport did finally open up only like six to nine months later than scheduled. So that was exciting. Um, But neither here nor there. I would say that an infrastructure package is more likely in 2021. Um, And what I've been um, assessing is really what the scale of an infrastructure package is going to be, since clearly deficits don't matter anymore. Uh, My expectation is that under President Biden, we would see the biggest possible infrastructure spending package under a President Warren, we'd see something slightly less robust, and under President Trump, um, something probably in the three to five hundred billion dollar yeah. range. Uh, that's that's sort of the focus we've had, but infrastructure spending in twenty twenty one seems very likely.
0: Well, let's go to something more basic, like roads. I mean, I mean, I was making a joke this morning. I had to come in, John, in a Bentley because the Sikorsky was down, and you know, I, I I came in, and Fifth Avenue is like cobblestones in Florence, or or you know, it, it's. Like, are we going to fix our Tiny roads? Tiny
1: violins out everywhere for you. No, it
0: was it's terrible. Turning. You know, but is is are we going to fix our roads this year? Is Democrats and Republicans going to help us do that? I
4: think if you can get individual states to take action, that's a possibility. Okay. So that'd be on a state-by-state basis. But at the federal level, uh, since we reached that $1.4 trillion spending package uh, between the House, Senate, and the White House just before the holidays, I would not expect a massive rollout of... Uh, road, bridge, or tunnel funding in 2020. Um, I would say it's more likely than, for yeah. instance, a high-speed rail program, but uh, I would not expect a major infrastructure yeah. push to be realistic unless it's coming from the states
0: specifically. And, John, I'd point out the JFK redo really appears to be state-done. You know, it's it's got nothing. It basically is a generalization. If we an airport shout-out,
1: so. Charleston Airport, very cool, South Carolina. Really? I've nice never been
0: there. Nice terminal yeah. to take yeah. a
1: visit. Nice okay. place to go. Okay. Go in spring when the weather gets just a little bit better, Tom. You'll enjoy that. Henrietta, let's talk about trade and not talk about airports and infrastructure. Phase one, a trade deal set to be signed on January 15th, according to the president. We'll have a ceremony, I believe, at the White House, according to the president. Henrietta, what is in a phase one agreement? And have we actually got a translation yet in Chinese and in English?
4: Um, so far, there is not. Uh, there is expected. so There's no translation. There's no legal text. We haven't seen a publicly available, you know, what is expected to be around an 86 page document that lays out exactly what China is committing to in the process by which U.S. companies can go and file claims to express that they are still seeing their IP uh, stolen or their tech being forced transferred, Um, all those components that are pieces of the initial phase one deal. We will not ever see the commitment from China on commodities purchases. The United States is explaining that that is something that could potentially distort commodity prices. Um, And that's an area of great concern for U.S. farmers because they really want to see language around what Brazil and Argentina are going to be continuing to do with China. They're worried about ceding market share in the long term to those two nations. Um, But the understanding I have is that on as early as Saturday, uh, the 4th, uh, Vice Premier Liu He and U.S. TRU LIFEISER could really ink a deal and and agree to legal text, And then President Trump will do whatever he's going to do on January
0: 15th in the White House has anybody seen the deal to john's question is it unusual that there's a big mystery about what's in 86 pages
4: um no i don't think it's particularly unusual i mean there is a chance that things could go sideways of course as there always is china has backed out of um committing to last minute legal ramifications before and that really is the crux of this one of the things that the united states is concerned about is whether or not the translation contains binding language so should China commit to IP reforms or shall China commit to IP reforms? You know, one sounds binding, the other sounds more optional. And that's really the, the, the final stage that they're in right
0: now. They're, but they're, the way into, that- they're into words. They're into like one word usage.
4: Exactly. And words are everything. Details are everything, uh, as we've discussed for over a year now. You know, um, that's, yeah. that's something that has broken this up before. So there is a scenario where this could fall apart. Um, there is some reporting just in the last few days that the president's tweeting specifically about January 15th should be worrisome to folks because it suggests that there was not a firm date set prior, and he's trying to force China's hand now by creating the optics that a deal has to be reached on the 15th. Um, So that's a little bit disconcerting. But based off of what I'm seeing behind the scenes, the briefings that have gone on, both amongst Republican staff, Democratic staff, House, Senate, and then also the trade associations and individual businesses, the White House went fast and furious on a full-scale rollout with their legal team explaining to every vested interest exactly what's in the deal. So I do think that there is a lot of concrete text Um, It's not, you know, final, final as yet, but I would not expect for anything to implode at this point. And moreover, I think the White House has lost its appetite for further tariffs. So we're going to keep all the existing $360 billion worth of tariffs in place. None of those will come off in 2020, but we don't want to see more. And the White House has lost its appetite for more since about late August.
1: What have we heard from the Chinese government?
4: We've heard that they are coming here, that they are willing to sign a document. They are happy to not see tariffs escalate. They are happy to make purchases. Um, On the troublesome side, we have heard that they are not willing to shut off any trade with foreign Counterparts that allow them to have open access and there's obviously a lot of talk about whether the United States trying to limit Brazil And Argentina's trade with China would be a violation of the WTO and China has seized on that I think Um, So pushback where necessary and Mm -hmm. capitulation to stave off
0: worse. Is Huawei or specific company technology involved in this phase one?
4: It is not involved in this, and USTR Heiser goes out of his way to explain that that is the Department of Commerce's purview and the Bureau of Industry and Security's purview. Um, it does come up in every single meeting, I'm advised, um, so I don't think that it's something that anybody is not aware no. of, but it is not the focal point, and it is not addressed in the Phase 1 deal at all, to my knowledge.
1: Phase two. Let's talk about that. The president also saying he'll go to Beijing, Henrietta. He'll go to Beijing where talks will begin on a second phase of the deal. What goes into phase two? And if the Chinese are unwilling to sign up to any binding legal enforcement measures in phase one, what hope do you have for phase two where things could get a whole lot trickier?
4: I have no expectations for phase two, nor do I have any expectations for President Trump to go to Beijing. Um, I think that that's something that we've seen from President Trump before. Um, There was speculation as far back as September and then again in October and November that President Trump would be traveling to Beijing. So I am not optimistic that that's... Uh, got any veracity behind it. And um, I would say that the most important thing about phase two is that it would include um, a discussion about state subsidization in China, which is integral to their economy and something they've been pretty clear is off the table for at yeah. least for the time being. So I am not expecting phase two, although, yeah. of course, there will have to be a discussion in it uh, around it, particularly as we get into the 2020 yeah. U.S. presidential election.
0: Henrietta, thank you so much. That's a terrific brief. Henrietta Tres- Tray- Thank you. My, my needed update on all of this with uh, VEDA Partners. Farrell mm-hmm. wants to go to our guest here on Russia and some other themes of Europe where he is truly America's expert. But I got to give him an end-of-the-decade victory lap. Whether you are conservative, liberal, doesn't matter. There was a book, The Price of Civilization, almost 10 years ago, that changed the discussion. Did you know, Jeff Sachs of Columbia University, did you know how lagging our education system would become when you wrote The Price of Civilization?
5: Yes, I did, <laughs> because you could see it the, was cl- it was you clear could see as a the bell un- in your book. Underlying trends in this country: we're not investing. Uh, period. We're not investing, whether it's in education or in infrastructure, which you were just talking about. Uh, we are not looking ahead, and this was uh, the point that I made uh, a decade ago, and I'm afraid that it remains true because we're in day-to-day politics, uh, we're in Twitter skirmishes, we're not thinking ahead and we still are trapped where is
0: the desperation or the urgency to jump start and reinvigorate our kindergarten primary and high school education system I, I, to me it's evaporated
5: it's uh, in the public everywhere because uh, people are unhappy uh, we want change but the political system is broken It's corrupted. Uh, It's uh, dominated by big money. We're blocked by all the corporate lobbies. And so it's not really the polarization or the partisan politics. Uh, It is what I called in that book, the corporatocracy. That's really uh, what has blocked America. Not Americans, by the way, which are normal, decent people. Uh, But it is our broken political system.
0: I would suggest some corporations have tried to donate here and there to jumpstart it. Professor, we're
1: sitting in this studio and we've got these TV screens around us and they're littered with the various cable networks here in the United States and one network had up how much money each candidate had brought in in the fourth quarter. Bernie Sanders, a candidate that you told me just before this conversation started that you're working with. So let's talk about it. Some of the issues that you described just a couple of minutes ago, what is he doing to address them and how will this play a part in the election still to come this year?
5: Well, Ber- Bernie is the candidate that says uh, we're basically in the grips of big money, uh, and uh, Bernie's uh, big haul in the fourth quarter, $34 million, was all from small donors. That's the beauty of it. What he's saying is I can uh, win the presidency without having to go to Wall Street, to big oil, uh, to uh, big pharma and health care. Right. What he's saying is... It's the lobbies that are killing us, and I'm going to be able to make a movement... That doesn't depend on those big lobbies.
0: Two points. And I've got to say that Michael Bloomberg, of course, founder of Bloomberg LP and uh, the owner of this TV and radio enterprise, as well as is running for the nomination as well. That's great, except I got two issues. One is, can he get elected by the rest of America that doesn't agree with Jeff Sachs or the the independent senator of Vermont? And the other thing is just as important is, how's he going to get anything through a Republican Senate? You know, the interesting thing,
5: Tom, about America is if you look at the opinion surveys, which I do very carefully, uh, the vast majority of Americans want higher taxes on the corporations. They want higher taxes on the rich. They want a federally uh, funded health care system. Uh, They want improved education. They want renewable energy. They do not want more fossil fuel energy. Uh, They know overwhelmingly that humans are making the climate change. And on and on. The problem in America is not Americans. Uh, The problem in America is broken politics of big corporate interests and this is really uh, what I wrote about right. in the corporatocracy, and, yeah. and uh, what what we really continue to face.
1: This is a conversation that needs a couple of hours at least, and not the two minutes. We <laughs> you know, well, we're and... starting at the new year,
0: so <laughs> we'll have time we this year. We, we do. can preempt surveillance, preempt the
5: real, <laughs> real yield, and we can do a two-hour anytime you guys want. I'm I'm happy to be here to the talk about the lesson
1: from the UK and the Labour Party and the politics of the left in the last month. Jeremy Corbyn showed that he could win the base the party membership he didn't show that he could win the general election on a national scale talk to me about Bernie Sanders and whether he falls into the same trap
5: I thought Jeremy Corbyn ran the worst possible election campaign and the worst possible framework the biggest issue facing Britain was brexit and he couldn't utter one coherent sentence about brexit So at least his opponent uh, had a view, whereas you couldn't even tell what Corbyn's view was. That's a disaster when you have the major issue facing a country in a generation, Mm -hmm. and the leader of the party— Can't say one coherent sentence. We'll
0: we'll say for another conversation, John and I can talk about Mr. Corbyn still running the Labor Party. I've got to get this in 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 30 (laughs) seconds before we have you on an hour. Jeff Sachs, is Bernie Sanders going to hand the election, the re-election to Donald Trump?
5: He absolutely will beat Donald Trump.
0: How's he going to do that in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Ohio? It's not Hubert Humphrey territory anymore. He's
5: been with the workers all his career. He's the most trusted candidate in America. He's got... Absolutely, the highest polling on is he honest? Okay. This is what's going to carry the election.
0: We got to leave it there. Jeff's actually got to come back Thank again. You, he is with Columbia University. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.